We're driven by the search for better. But when it comes to hiring, the best way to search for a candidate isn't to search at all. Don't search match with Indeed. Indeed is your matching and hiring platform with over 350 million global monthly visitors, according to Indeed data, and a matching engine that helps you find quality candidates fast. Ditch the busy work. Use Indeed for scheduling, screening, and messaging so you can connect with candidates faster. Leveraging over 140 million qualifications and preferences every day, Indeed's matching engine is constantly learning from your preferences, so the more you use Indeed, the better it gets. Join more than 3.5 million businesses worldwide that use Indeed to hire great talent fast. And listeners of this show will get a $75 sponsored job credit to get your jobs more visibility at Indeed.com slash BlueWire. Just go to Indeed.com slash BlueWire right now and support our show by saying that you heard about Indeed on this podcast. That's Indeed.com slash BlueWire. Terms and conditions apply. Need to hire? You need Indeed. What's going on, everyone? Thanks for tuning in to another episode of the Ducks Dish podcast. We just uh, finished our most recent show, I don't know, 20 minutes ago. But, uh, you know, the news cycle never stops, and uh, we are in a crazy time amid uh, conference realignment and all the chaos that comes with it. So if you guys are new here, I'm your host, Max Torres. Appreciate you guys taking some time out of your day to talk some ball with us, talk some ducks. We're live on YouTube at Oregon Football Max Torres, so if you guys are here in the live chat, make sure to hop in the comments. Let me know how you're feeling about all this realignment drama and everything that's going on with it. But um, yeah, we just finished talking about Caleb Presley's commitment. Uh, definitely give that a check, uh, a listen. But I am joined by my uh, good friend Brian Driscoll. He is the publisher of Irish Breakdown, and I felt like it was a great time to bring you on, Ryan, because uh, I feel like Oregon fans definitely have a, an interest in Notre Dame <laughs> as they await to see what happens with uh, their decision. How you doing? I'm doing great, man. It's a nice pickup for Oregon. I like Caleb Presley a lot. He had a Notre Dame offer. Notre Dame actually liked him, Max. They uh, tried to get him on campus and tried to get some interest from him. He just wasn't all that interested in, uh, in heading to South Bend. But that's a really nice pickup. Really nice pickup. Yeah, I'm uh, I'm pretty excited for uh, him to get to Eugene, being that green and yellow. He, he's a guy that has been linked to Oregon for a real long time. Mm-hmm. Uh, the crystal ball staff is really high on him, and he had been out to Eugene like a million times. So feel like that one made a lot of sense and uh i feel like the the oregon staff is yeah. kind of trying to line that one up with their yeah. calendar yeah and i mean you know you kind of get it this time of the year it's good to get some momentum and really really good scheme fit too he's a really physical kid you oregon uh, at least landing liked at georgia he liked those kind of players i'm not sure what he's going to be doing with tosh as a defensive coordinator but if they run anything like what he ran at uh, at georgia it's a really nice scheme fit and i appreciate you letting me do the the write-up for that for the class impact article, but that's a really strong pick. And that, you know, I also did that that DB they got from Texas. And, and the one thing I noticed, the guys that they're going after in the secondary are really active, high IQ, get their hands on football type of guys. And I think when you look at what they did at Georgia, it makes a lot of sense. You know, they really want to have disruptors on the back end. And you know, I think they've had some really good athletes at Oregon the last few years in the secondary, but maybe not a lot of real disruptive guys. And I think these guys bring a lot of that to the table. Yeah, I think that's absolutely something that the, the Ducks are looking for. They, they've been talking about shot callers on that mm-hmm. defense under Tosh Lapoy and how uh, turnovers are going to be uh, a priority. That They were a priority under Tim DeRuiter last year. Mm-hmm. Uh, I think that's why they stayed in a lot of games and, and didn't yeah. end up losing. But 
kind of topped off a little bit after some some injuries happened. It, it, and- it takes time though to get that going. That's not just something you just cu- call a scheme. It's a it's a mindset. It's something that you got to practice every day. You know, it's not just something that you can say, okay, we want to be disruptive, and then you just you know here you go. It, it, like I said, it, it's going to take some time. Some games it's going to be good. Some games it's not going to be good. And you know, and I think so they'll be able to build on what Coach DeRoyter did last year, and, and uh, you know, hopefully get prove that pass defense because that's obviously going to be a big part of, of what they're going to need to do moving forward to get back on you know that playoff stage that it's been a few years since they've been on and uh you know certainly a good start to recruiting so far under Dan Landing. Yeah, absolutely. They've been they've been doing a real great job, especially after the timing that they mm-hmm. the time when they came in. I think that was a, a little bit of a hurdle for them, but I like what they're putting together. Um gotta think that uh Dan Lanning's looking to replicate what he did with that Georgia secondary Keely mm-hmm. Ringo was was a, a big player in that national championship game. So recruiting's uh, alive and well. I think some Oregon fans were getting a little uneasy, a little nervous about uh, where things were at with this 23 class. But July is commitment season, so I think it kind of just pays to, to have some patience and play the long game. Yeah, and patience is especially true for a, a new coach who's establishing new relationships. You know, if you look at like Notre Dame, they have a, a first-year head coach too. But Marcus Freeman had been there for a year as the defensive coordinator. I mean, it takes time to establish those relationships, especially with a coach who's coming from outside the region. And there's a lot of West Coast relationships for him with coaches and ADs and stuff that's going to be new. And then you got to get a good read on where you are with your program. You can't you can't figure that out till you get through spring ball. Hey, what what's our culture here? What are the things that we need, not just talent wise, but attitude wise, personality wise, leadership wise? And it takes some time to put that stuff together. And, and so I think patience is scared. I'd rather, if it, just my perspective, I'd rather do that than fill up on kids. And then you realize like, you know what, we needed this, but we filled up on this. So, you know, now, now we, what do we do here? So I, you know, I, I like what they're doing and, you know, I, I think it all that matters is where you are in December. Right. And, you know, I think that's the key. So anyway, I just, I love talking recruiting. So I like what no, Oregon's doing. No, I'm, I'm here for all of it. That's, that's my uh, bread and butter too. That's my favorite part of this, uh, this gig. Uh, just to, to what you said about the relationships, I think one way that Dan Lanning kind of um, minimized the or closed the gap a little bit with with those relationships is kind of the people he surrounded himself right. with, right? Tosh Lapoy, a big name on the West Coast, Demetrius Martin in that Southern California, Pasadena, LA area. Mm-hmm. Um, so those are, and Adrian Clem as well as a Southern California guy. And then you have uh, staff connections that that reach as far east as, as Alabama and, and some of those other states in, in the SEC country. So I really like what they what they did with their staff. And Tosh, I mean, that's where Tosh got his reputation, right? Wasn't it at, at Washington when he really yep. kind of got on the map as a big-time recruiter and then left for Bama and did all that kind of stuff? But, you know, so, I mean, it, it's good. But, like I said, it, it takes some time to get it rolling. And uh, and they're, I'm still ticked that they got Kyler Casper. That's a guy that I as – as a Notre Dame fan, I love that kid's film. But, again, another guy that just wanted to – was was looking for different things, but that's another big pickup. He he reclassified, right? Isn't he? Mm-hmm. Isn't he going to yep, play for them this year? Yeah, yeah, yeah. Good player. Yeah, that was huge. Another thing that um I, I just kind of came to mind is we we both found ourselves uh, in the coaching carousel, you know, with our respective teams that mm-hmm. that we cover um that this uh this past off season just to kind of bridge the similarities here as we get into some Notre Dame talk. But the last big picture thing I wanted to ask you before we talk more Notre Dame specifically um, is just kind of what you thought about maybe just some of your thoughts on the Dan Lanning hire, seeing that, you know, you're a former college coach. Um, I, I feel like you have tremendous insight for the sport and kind of the big picture things. What do you, what did you think of the Dan Lanning hire kind of given where Oregon's at right now mm-hmm. uh, in the college football landscape? 
Well, to be honest with you, I was a, I was a little puzzled by it just because, you know, he's a young guy and, and you look at his track record and, and you look where he's from. He's from Missouri. He's coached at Memphis, Alabama, Sam Houston, Arizona State's like the furthest west he's gone, you know, Georgia, Oregon. And you're like, OK, well, what what's the fit there? Right. You know, because a lot of times it's well, this guy's from here or whatever the case may be. So that part of it is always intriguing, you know, when, when you see guys get hired, because sometimes it can work out great. And sometimes it's like, you know, Urban Meyer never coached anywhere close to Florida when he got hired there. You know, he was a Cincinnati, Notre Dame, you know, Bowling Green, Utah guy. It worked out. And then you see people like Tom O'Brien go from, you know, success at Boston College to NC State and it doesn't work out, you know, but the he, he's a look, he's a young guy. He's energetic. I think you saw a lot of schools kind of going to that type of coach, whether it's Marcus Freeman, Notre Dame, uh, Billy Napier at, at Florida, you know, trying to find that instead of a retread, a you know, guy that's been out there, an experienced guy, you know, you go for someone who, you know, is going to bring some fresh energy and, and, and all that type of stuff. And I, I think he brings that. I thought he did a really nice job with the Georgia defense. You know, I think one of the things that, that often gets overlooked about a team like Alabama and and I think Georgia, especially defensively, is people just kind of say, well, look at how many NFL guys they have. And they don't like break down the game and be like, yes, they're very talented, but they're very well coached, too. And that's why they can continue to have that success. And, you know, like I said, I liked what he did defensively. I don't know a lot. of. I mean, I, I wasn't huge on what Tosh did as a defensive coordinator at Alabama, but he can definitely recruit. And how does he learn from his experiences as a defensive coordinator? Kenny Dillingham did some nice things at Florida State last year. You know, he was a nice player for for them next year. Uh, and you got to hop out, Max. So I think Max has got to hop out here. Oh. Oh. Can you hear me okay, Yeah, Brian? I can hear you now. Yeah. Okay. That, yeah. How I much can of hear. obstacle my internet's been um well if you know anything about you watch my show max you know i can just talk through whatever you need to do man so <laughs> but yeah, anyway i think we're, I think I we're like okay now doing. yeah i like what he's doing you know kenny dillingham did some nice i mean look florida state gave notre dame a, a headache this year offensively and, and and put up 38 points on notre dame and kenny dillingham was their offensive coordinator so he made some good hires uh but um you know i mean look any it's like with mark Freeman. anytime you have a first year coach there's always going to be an unknown and how is he going to make that transition from coordinator head coach? But, you know, I like the fact that they, they, they're they trying something new, something fresh, something with a lot of energy as opposed to just going out and hiring some retread that, you know, that that you hope can work this time. So I, I can dig it. And, look, he's inheriting a good situation. Mario Cristobal did a really nice job getting Oregon back on track and building a strong foundation. And I understand why he left. You know, when your home comes calling, you know, sometimes you feel you got to answer that bell. But. You know, so far I like what Dan Lanning has done, but it's just it's anytime you have a first year head coach, there's just going to be the unknowns of that. Yeah, there's there's various unknowns and, and growing pains that that being that come with being a first year head coach, and then also being a program in transition. Um, but that's why I feel like this uh, the timeline for Oregon is so unique because Dan Lanning comes into Eugene, gets that first head coaching job in the midst of a championship window. I mean, if Oregon is able to get the job done against Arizona State in 2019, they'd likely find themselves in the college football playoff again for the first time since 2014. And then this bombshell breaks with USC and UCLA heading to the Big Ten. And uh, now we have another massive unknown, another potential yeah. challenge that that Landing has to navigate, which is uh, what I want to use to kind of uh, transition into the big focus right now because it feels, Brian, like uh, – 
Oregon and the rest of the country, but really Oregon is, is playing the waiting game as uh, we await a decision from Notre Dame on whether they want to stay independent or head to the Big Ten. <laughs> as if the rest of college football didn't need another reason to hate Notre Dame. <laughs> now all these schools got to wait for Notre Dame to make their decision before the Big Ten uh, uh, you know, makes their move. I mean, it makes sense, right? I mean, if you're the Big Ten, of course you want Notre Dame. It's a premier program. They're going to have huge crowds, huge audiences. They're a name. They're arguably the most – I mean, I, I don't think it's arguable, but I'm being respectful to not being on a Notre Dame channel. Uh, arguably the biggest brand in college football, and brand is different than what you're putting on the field. It's the name. It's all those type of things. It's a huge brand, and so, of course, you're going to want that. I'd be shocked if Notre Dame took that. Uh, but I think the thing is the Big Ten is the what they do next is going to be very interesting. How long are they willing to wait for Notre Dame? I think that's going to be a question is, do you feel this need to to speed things up and get to 18 or whatever the case may be? Or are you going to say, hey, look, we need to handle this the right way. We need to make sure we're getting the right fit. If you're, if you're going to try to make Notre Dame decide now, you're not going to like the answer, right? But if you're willing to kind of play the long game and say, hey, look, we don't get USC until, what is it, 24? Right. They don't get USC till 24. The playoff deal doesn't come until what, like 25. Notre Dame's TV contract doesn't expire till 2025 with NBC. There's a lot going on. So does the big is the Big Ten willing to play the long game here with Notre Dame or are they going to feel the need to have to expedite this quickly and say, if you don't want to come, we're going to go somewhere else? Because if they if they put that kind of ultimatum on Notre Dame, it's going to be like, you know, have fun with that. Yeah, because that, that's kind of how it feels right now, at least with like some rumblings and like, you know, reports is that Notre Dame is the the big fish right now for the Big Ten. And that's why the, the uh, other schools like Oregon and, and Washington, which are those premier brands, I think right now uh, they're being viewed like that in the Pac-12. And also, I think it because it has to do with the location and the rivalry that those two schools get lumped together. Um but, I mean, Stanford, you look at them, they have the, the most combined national championships of any school in the country, uh, I believe, although they, they haven't really been too strong on the field when it comes to football of late. But David Shaw is, I think, pretty well respected when it comes to, to head coaches. You obviously have overlapped with him, being that Stanford sure. and Notre Dame have a rivalry. But Dominated uh, I mean, Notre Dame early in his tenure. I mean, just dominated Notre Dame. for. I mean, from 2009 to 2017, really I mean, Stanford controlled that series. So yeah, very very familiar with him. But honestly, Max, it doesn't that doesn't matter. Like the quality of the programs doesn't matter. Like they did not like the Big Ten didn't go get USC because of the national championships and the Heisman trophies and the All Americans. They got it for the LA market. That's mm-hmm. the only reason Rutgers is in the market now. It's the market. It's the TV market, right? And so that's the thing that they have to understand is. You know, is the Seattle market and and whether it be Portland or Eugene or whatever markets that that Oregon is strong in, are those enough to make the Big Ten say, hey, let's go do this? And like the concern with the Seattle market is, is that a college market or is that a pro town? You know, and that's the question you have to ask yourself. Will people in Seattle tune in to watch Ohio State playing Washington or, well, they would that. Here's a better test. Minnesota playing Washington. Yeah, lower Wisconsin playing Washington, Indiana playing Washington. And that's the question you have to ask yourself. LA, yeah, they don't, you know, yes, people are going to watch USC, right? And I think that's the question about this. And that's that's where this realignment stuff comes from. Why, why else do they want Maryland? Is it for the football tradition? No, it's they want the DC Baltimore market. Why did they bring in Rutgers? Because they thought it would help them in the New York market. And that's what the LA moves were all about. It was It's all about TV dollars. That's what this whole thing is about. And that's kind of what 
kind of ticks me off, to be honest with you, because we're just destroying all the traditions that made this sport so great, that made us want to cover it and, and love it and grow up watching it just because of TV money. And um, it's the reality of it, but it doesn't mean I have to like it. Yeah, well, uh, let's uh, we'll get into that a little bit later, just as far as the direction of college football, because I definitely want to get your thoughts on that. But as far as the, po- the question you posed about Washington fans wanting to watch some of those other Big Ten games, I think they absolutely would want to watch those games mm-hmm. just because the Pac-12 has just been an embarrassment. Sure. Like, what? how much worse can the games get? I mean, Washington went 4-8 and eight last year. They had to watch uh, their interim head coach strike a player before he got fired. Um, and the, the on-field product was just horrible, right. albeit that Oregon didn't win too two-handedly. I was at that game. It was a, a cold, uh, stormy night in, in Seattle, but they were able to get it done. Um, but I feel like they would definitely watch those games, and that's a unique challenge that I didn't really think about when you were talking about is Seattle a pro or a college market, right. seeing that they have the Seahawks, they have the Seattle Storm, they have the Mariners, um, and then you also have another school in that state in the Cougs, uh, Washington State Cougars, that you kind of have to maybe contend with a little bit. But um, I, I think that that's why I feel like going to the Big Ten would would benefit Oregon and Washington and and any other Pac-12 schools for mm-hmm. that matter that kind of get lumped in there just because it, it raises the floor um, of your competition. And I think it makes your product much more appealing. See, I think it depends on how the scheduling – I would want to know how the scheduling is going to be, right, if I'm looking at it from that standpoint. Because let's let's say you're in some kind of Western conference, right, and you're going to have USC and UCLA, which is a traditional rival. But then – not traditional rival, conference opponent. But you're most likely not going to be in the same division with Ohio State and Michigan and Penn State, some of those bigger-name programs. It's going to be Wisconsin, Minnesota, Nebraska. You know, it's going to be Iowa, Purdue. Most likely are going to be a lot of teams that you would play if Oregon and, and Minnesota and, and Seattle were in the or Washington were in those leagues. And I think that's more of the challenging thing. Like you think, oh, yeah, they'll definitely watch Ohio State and Michigan and Penn State. But how often are they going to play those teams at home? And I think that would be the bigger question for me. And, and then my, my second response is if the Pac-12, all the markets were so strong for college sports, why can't the Pac-12 get a better deal? Is it was, and I'm asking this genuinely. Was it just sheer incompetence from your your uh, from your commissioner all these years? I mean, wh- why has the Pac-12 struggled to get that kind of share? If because you've got these big markets, you would think Phoenix, right? You know, that's the other question: Is Phoenix a college town or a pro town? You know, you talk about my wife grew up in San Diego, and she'll tell me there's a lot of apathy towards towards sports in California. It's been that way for a long time. They love their pro sports, but you know. You look at USC. USC gets great crowds when they're good. I mean, <laughs> keyword key there, <laughs> right? When they're good, I've been to some games there where it's like it seemed like there was as many Notre Dame people there. Stanford, I mean, for all as good as they've been, their crowds are terrible because there's just not a lot of excitement, unfortunately, for a great product. And Stanford had some great products, and you know, we'd go cover Notre Dame Stanford games, and you'd see much blue and green in the stands as you as you would red, and you know, it's like that shouldn't happen. Right. When you're when you're that kind of programming. And so I think that would be the big question for me is, was it was kicking it to you? Was it just Larry Scott was just that inept, which is possible? Or what what, what's the reason that they've struggled as 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 bad as they have with some really big markets to get the kind of TV deal that the Big Ten and, and the SEC is getting? Yeah, I, I, that's obviously an, an awesome question that I'm going to do my best to answer. I think, you know, I I didn't really get into the the industry you know until like you know three 
three-ish years ago. This is my first year with, you know, with Ducks Digest. But to just kind of give some of my perspective on what I've been able to see, I think probably the biggest factor has to be what Larry Scott was doing, um, you know, botching the, the media market deals. Um, you know, the Pac-12 network was this, you know, his his baby, you know, his his uh, mm-hmm. grand idea that, that just never really got running. Um, you know, even before I started covering the Ducks, I was obviously watching them a lot. And it's just so hard. It was so hard to find those games. And obviously, Oregon wasn't the only school that found themselves in, in that situation that would in some way, shape or form trickle down to some of these other schools. So just the product was hard to access. I think that's a, a huge one and why you miss out on a lot of money. Um, and then another part of it, you have the deterioration of the on-field product. And I think that kind of started, you maybe could say, I'm not trying to pinpoint like a certain time, but when Stanford kind of started to go on the decline a little bit, mm-hmm. Oregon obviously went four and eight in 2016. So interest was, was uh, not at an all-time low, but um, you know fans were probably a little pessimistic at that point. Uh, and then Willie Taggart was just here for a little bit. So Oregon and USC were, were kind of uh, not as good as they've been historically. Um, so I think that that probably has something to do with it. I think that's what some of these other conferences have on the Pac-12 is that even if they don't have amazing teams, you know, the middle of the road SEC teams have probably kicked the heck out of a lot of these Pac-12 teams. So right. the deterioration of the, the on-field product, I think, is huge. Um, and then another part of it that I think a lot of uh, – you know, my my audience uh, and viewers would probably um, back me up on is the the Pac-12 referees. Right. I feel like just how many Bro, times we play, have we heard we play about West, Pac-12 refs? Notre Dame plays a West Coast team every year, a Pac-12 team at the end of every year. So we trust me, we get Yeah, you've seen it. You don't got to explain to us how terrible Pac-12 officials are. You know, I think the thing, too, is as you talk about that, I think the fact that your premier programs have been down during this sort of growth to expansion has hurts as well. You know, where USC and, and Oregon starting to come back, but really since 2014, I mean, talk about the 2019 season, but even then it was like, they were good, but it just, it, it didn't have that vintage, you know, whether it's going back to Dennis Dixon or Dennis or, you know, uh, Tom, the, what was this dust? Uh, De- Thomas, the Darren Thomas, Darren Thomas, you know, yep. whether it's a Marcus Mariota, like those vintage Oregon teams. Wasn't that exciting to watch? You know, it wasn't. It, I mean, they were a good team, but they were good a lot because of how good Justin Herbert was. Not and their defense. Right. But they weren't a sexy team. You know, and that's what the West Coast used to be. It was flashy. It was it was Matt Leinard and Reggie Bush and those teams. And then all the way back, it was you know O.J. Simpson and Charles White and these big name players, Marcus Allen. And it, it just lost a lot of that. And I think timing is is bad too. That I think that's something that's hurt the ACC. Is Miami stinks. Florida State's stunk since 2014. And the last time Florida State was actually really good, they went and got obliterated by you know Oregon in the postseason. That was an, a really just sloppy Florida State team. You know they're hemorrhaging money, and it's like you have no leverage because you're like, what? What are you going to build a TV deal around Clemson? You know, like great football program, but not exactly a market you're going to go build around. You know, being Boston College has been down. So I think timing of it is is hurt the Pac-12 as well. That if USC was rolling and UCLA was a vintage UCLA team and Oregon was vintage Oregon, you know, the desert swarm was rolling again in, temp, you know, in, in uh, uh, Tucson, maybe it would be a more attra- – because more people would watch and be at games and all that, and you'd have a more attractive product, kind of like the ACC. So – I think timing has been a, a, a big problem for him as well in recent years. Yeah, that, that's absolutely a factor here. No question about it. 
And to talk to go to your point about Oregon not being as sexy of a product, I think that's a really good point to, to dive into a little bit because when Oregon was its most dominant in recent years, it was usually because of their defense. You can think about mm-hmm. that 2019 team with Andy Avalos running that defense. That was the, the best defense Oregon has had in a while. They were definitely in discussion among the, the best defenses in the country, I think. But even back then, their, their offense left so much to be desired. <coughs> Excuse me. Um, and they were they were um, relying so much on their run game. And um, you know to have a talent like Justin Herbert doing what he's doing now and then to look back on his college career and you're kind of like, eh, like that's all he did. Like I yeah. feel like, I mean, and that's not an indictment on him. He's a phenomenal player. You can only sure. do – the, the most that you can with, sure. with the cards that you're dealt. So I think that might have something to do with Oregon not being as sexy as it used to be because the defense right. was kind of running the show. And honestly, that, that kind of looks like that's where the program is at right now with uh, the talent that they have on their roster, but they've added some really good pieces in these past couple classes, new coaches. And it looks like Kenny Dillingham's going to do everything he can to, to breathe that excitement back into the program, which is hopefully going to make them more balanced a and then, you know, be more attractive, I think, to your point. I, I, I got to ask this because as, as a Pac-12 group, what what is the response been towards USC and UCLA from other Pac-12? I mean, is there like a whatever or is there betrayal? I mean, because like your TV contract is coming up, what, like 24, 25? And then your biggest mark, your two big market teams just bail. Like, what is the response from, from I mean, that you've kind of seen? Obviously, you can only speak to really to Oregon fans, but I mean, is – I would just feel like I I just feel like I just got, you know, stabbed in the back by my best friend because losing that just kills their chance to get a big the the, the max deal they potentially could have had because you've got a new commissioner, you know, you give them a couple years to kind of get the conference on a better footing and then you got this new TV deal and now it's you know, the odds of getting the max deal that you could have got are gone because the LA market's gone. Yeah, I, th- I think, I mean, the the majority of what I've been able to see, you know, from people on my channel and and on social media is that Fans are upset, no doubt about it. Just a, you know, a tremendous amount of animosity, I think, towards USC and UCLA, because the way this all broke, I mean, the the Pac-12 has issued statements, and and I don't know if you've seen any of them, but it's like, oh, we're we're getting into expansion talk, we're considering mm-hmm. everything, and then today it was we're looking at all our media rights deals, and it's like you guys have you needed to be doing this right. forever ago, like, and I, I feel like it just speaks to how blindsided they were by right. this move, but to that point. I think USC and UCLA, it kind of gives the feel that they were planning this for a while. Um, and, you know, that's, well, I think that we heard these rumblings when Texas and Oklahoma decided that last summer that they were leaving for the SEC. We started hearing rumblings about USC and UCLA. So I just, it just strikes me as like, how, how did you not at least kind of have a plan for that? But I mean, it, it is what it is. But I, I think when you look at the end of the day, I have a feeling that USC and UCLA are going to come to regret this. And and honestly, I think it's I think it's two athletic departments that were very poorly ran financially for years that basically went broke during COVID and they're hemorrhaging money and they needed a money grab. And I and that's just kind of how I view it. You know, and there are ADs out there today, you know, we were struggling all this other kind of stuff and it's like, "Okay, well, that's because you don't know how to handle your, you know, your May take it like a Dave Ramsey class or something like that. You know what I mean? And figure out how to better handle your money. But uh, you know, I have a feeling they're gonna come to regret this. Just like I think I think Texas and Oklahoma are gonna come to regret going to the SEC for a host of reasons, but I, I think they're gonna regret this when it's all said and done. They're gonna get their payout, but they're gonna yeah, I think they're gonna come to regret this. 
Yeah, I think just just to finish up my, my last response on the, the kind of response that I've seen from from the rest of the Pac-12 fans and the Oregon fan base, it definitely does feel like they're kind of getting stabbed in the back um, by those two schools. And uh, I'm sure that they kind of saw, you know, hey, the writing's on the wall. Like, this isn't really, um, you know, where, the way we're not going to be able to survive in the Pac-12 just by the direction the conference is going. Mm-hmm. Um, but that's probably a good point that you met, referenced with just how they were hemorrhaging money during COVID. And that could be kind of a, a long-term sure. effect that they're still reeling from. Um, but uh, let's see. I think I, I want to go ahead and take a really quick break for the, the podcast listeners uh, once we get this chopped up. So we're going to take a quick break talking with Brian Driscoll of Irish Breakdown about how Notre Dame uh, might affect Oregon's future as we wait to see what the Irish do uh, with their invitation to the Big Ten. Uh, but stick around and we'll have more on the other side. We're driven by the search for better. But when it comes to hiring, the best way to search for a candidate isn't to search at all. Don't search match with Indeed. Indeed is your matching and hiring platform with over 350 million global monthly visitors, according to Indeed data, and a matching engine that helps you find quality candidates fast. Ditch the busy work. Use Indeed for scheduling, screening, and messaging so you can connect with candidates faster. Leveraging over 140 million qualifications and preferences every day, Indeed's matching engine is constantly learning from your preferences So the more you use Indeed, the better it gets. Join more than 3.5 million businesses worldwide that use Indeed to hire great talent fast. And listeners of this show will get a $75 sponsored job credit to get your jobs more visibility at Indeed.com slash BlueWire. Just go to Indeed.com slash BlueWire right now and support our show by saying that you heard about Indeed on this podcast. That's Indeed.com slash BlueWire. Terms and conditions apply. Need to hire? You need Indeed. Hey, it's Kaylee Cuoco for Priceline. Ready to go to your happy place for a happy price? Well, why didn't you say so? Just download the Priceline app right now and save up to 60% on hotels. So whether it's Cousin Kevin's Kazoo concert in Kansas City, go Kevin! Or Becky's Bachelorette Bash in Bermuda, you never have to miss a trip ever again. So download the Priceline app today. Your savings are waiting. Go to your happy place for a happy price. Go to your happy price, Priceline. All right, welcome back to the Duck Stage Podcast. I'm your host, Max Torres, talking with Brian Driscoll of Irish Breakdown, talking some Notre Dame because this might be the most overlap that we've uh, had since I uh, you know, got this job, Brian. So I uh, definitely wanted to bring you on and uh, get some of your, your perspective here. Um, we've talked about some really good big picture stuff as far as, you know, the, the direction of college football, um, and, you know, some of your thoughts on, on Oregon and, and Notre Dame, some of the overlap with some PAC 12 opponents. Um, first of all, I just want to give a shout out to you for coming on and sharing the, the show with your audience, because this is the most viewers <laughs> we've ever had in a live show. And it's like 10 30 out. In, I in roll deep, man. I roll deep. <laughs> I go, I take my crew everywhere I go. Exactly. No, that you do. I mean, when we started, it was just Ivy Nation, Ivy Nation in the chat. So I want to say a big thank you to everybody that's uh, been hopping in here. Um, Brian does a tremendous job on his show. He does lives every day. Um, so you guys got to make sure you check over, check out his channel, which we'll make sure to plug at the end. Um, I definitely want to leave some time for some questions, but I wanted to hit on some stuff that was uh, important that I asked you while I still had you. So mm-hmm. just to, to hyper-focus on Notre Dame here, you were saying that you don't think 
that or, I don't know if it was you don't think or you don't want Notre Dame to to ultimately go to the Big Ten. Just just wanted to get some of your perspective there because that's what a lot of people are asking. You know, should Notre Dame do it? Will they do it? Well, what I've tried to do on our channel is differentiate between what my opinion is and what I'm hearing. And so, you know, I don't ever want Notre Dame to join a conference. I mean, that's I grew up on an independent. The reason Notre Dame is an independent is because the Big Ten twice rejected Notre Dame because I mean, it was, you know, back during the Newt Rockney time and, and, and way back when. Notre Dame tried to get again, get in again in the 50s, and they kept being rejected. And a lot of it had to do with just they were a Catholic institution, and they didn't want the Catholics in the conference. And there's some other reasons why that weren't as important. Notre Dame's a private school. Most of the teams in the Big Ten other than Northwestern are public schools. They're research in- institutions. Notre Dame is not. You know, So there's a lot of reasons why it's not a great fit. But that's really what it boiled down to was Notre Dame wanted to get in the Big Ten, and mainly due to Michigan, the Big Ten said no. And a lot of it had to do with the anti-Catholic bigotry. So Notre Dame said, fine, we'll go we'll go kind of do our own thing. And that's partly when USC jumped on board with them and they started that rivalry back in the 20s. And then Notre Dame becomes this big-time powerhouse, you know, not just on the field for a long time, but even when they weren't that great product on the field, they were still a huge powerhouse brand when it came to dollars. I mean, there's a reason Notre Dame got its own TV contract and nobody else since then has their own TV contract with a major network. If Alabama or Ohio State or Oregon or Texas or whoever else could sign their own deal with a major network, you don't think they would? Of course they would, right? And so, you know, Notre Dame was able to do that. And then, of course, the Big Ten comes calling in the 90s. Oh, we love you now. We're, you know, we're not bigots anymore. We'd love to have you. Notre Dame said pound sand, which they should have said. That's my personal opinion. I don't want to join a conference. And if you do, I definitely don't want it to be the Big Ten. I could see a scenario where I could be convinced of the Big East or start your own conference. That's my opinion. Okay. What I said at the beginning of the show was based on my intel, talking to different sources. I believe that Notre Dame is going to remain independent. I don't think the the circumstances of college football are such that Notre Dame feels compelled to join a conference. And there's a lot of reasons why we can get into. Because I think a lot of non – heck, even a lot of Notre Dame fans – uh, especially younger fans don't have an understanding of why Notre Dame is independent, how Notre Dame views TV money relative to how a lot of other schools view TV money and those type of things to where they just say, well, how can you turn down that kind of money? Same reason they have in the past, you know? And, and I think that's a big reason. So we can kind of dive into those, but what my sources are telling me, I've, I've talked to a lot of different people. We reported this on our premium site tonight that I believe right now Notre Dame is, is strongly leaning towards, remaining independent and in their eyes they're still going to have a tv deal they're still going to have a path to a national championship and at the end of the day as long as Notre Dame has those two things and the third thing which I don't think is quite as important that they have a conference where the rest of their Olympic sport teams can still play then then they're not going to feel the need because remember the only sport Notre Dame is independent is football they're in a conference with everyone else they're in the big 10 for hockey they're in they used to be in like the East Coast, whatever hockey league. And then they joined the Big Ten. They're in the ACC for just about everything else. It's just football that's independent, and that's the difference. Okay, yeah, no, I, I like the. That's one of the things that I feel like um, I've been thinking about is that Notre Dame has a tremendous amount of leverage here. Right. Um, seeing that we're we're waiting this long, we don't really know what a timeline looks like. So I definitely uh, like to get your perspective with with that what you were talking about and and how you shared some of your intel with us. Because my thinking was, once it came out that uh, um, you know, the Big Ten was waiting on Notre Dame, I'm like, okay, let's think. Um, when it comes to expanding, expansion, you usually want to move in even numbers. So probably pairs here, which is why so many people paired up Oregon and Washington. 
for reasons that we talked about earlier. But my kind of thinking was, okay, let's say hypothetically Notre Dame does join the Big Ten. I, th- I think a lot of people would like to see Oregon join the Big Ten, and that's a pair that moved together. Mm-hmm. Um, but obviously the SEC isn't going to stand pat while uh, while this happens. So that's kind of how I see it playing out. Again, I'm, I'm not hearing anything in particular. Uh, I don't really have the, the intel on this specific move. I'm just kind of trying to play through some of the scenarios uh, in my head um, when it comes to, you know, what ultimately might happen. I would imagine Notre Dame would have a, would want to have a say in who comes if they were to join. I I have a feeling they would say, Hey, look, if you want us, you need to bring so-and-so, you know, Boston college, Navy, something like that. I mean, I think there'd be something along those lines or uh, to, 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 you know, to, to join it. Cause that's the thing that, that people have to understand is, as you said, Notre Dame has all the leverage right now. There's this notion going around, and it's it's 99% of it's from non-Notre Dame fans that don't understand the complexities of Notre Dame's independence. That you know, well, Notre Dame, they they better join now, they're gonna be left out in the cold. They said the same thing before COVID, and you had conferences begging Notre Dame to come play them. You know what I mean? Like the ACC bent over backwards to get Notre Dame in, into there, where a lot of other people were losing TV money that year. Notre Dame actually made more TV money that year than they had in past years because of the way that they structured that deal uh with, with the ACC. So you know, Notre Dame does have all the leverage because, and I hear, well, you know, Notre Dame hasn't won a title. It doesn't matter. It's about the brand. It's not about the product on the field, but the fact that Notre Dame is also a good product on the field right now, combined with that brand, makes it even more appealing. So, you know, as long as, like I said, there's a path to a championship, and right now there's no discussion of Notre Dame being left out of any, you know, there's no, you have to be in one of these two conferences. As much as people want to say those conferences are dead, they do still exist. The Big 12 is still a thing. The Pac-12 is still a thing. The ACC is still a thing. So until you get to that point in time where there is just the two mega conferences and they both say, well, we don't want you, which is not going to happen, you have all the leverage. And when they do get to the two mega conferences, then all of a sudden their name still has leverage because then it's a bidding war starts between the the new SEC and the new Big 10. And so Notre Dame absolutely has all the leverage. There's no reason to, for them to panic right now. And that's what a lot of this is, especially for Notre Dame fans. It's like, well, we, you know, we got to go join before we get left. Just calm down. That's not going to happen. And because this is a business decision, this isn't an emotional decision. It's not a football decision. It's a business decision. And for Notre Dame, it, it is better for them financially to remain independent. People say, well, how can that be when their TV contract is just, you know, they're getting 15 from NBC, they're getting 10 million from the ACC. 25 million. That's why all these other teams are jumping ship. Notre Dame doesn't depend on their TV contract the way a lot of other people depend on their TV contracts to basically fund all of their sports programs and part of their school and scholarships and different things like that. Notre Dame doesn't operate that way. They haven't for a long time. Notre Dame's desire for a TV deal of its own TV is about exposure. It's about brand building. It's not about, we need this deal to, you know, fund our basketball program and our lacrosse program and our football program and all these other kind of things. It's about exposure. And that's the biggest reason why Notre Dame has no desire to be in a conference because if it was about money, they would have joined the big 10 back in the nineties because they were going to get a much better deal long-term then than they are now. They would have joined the last time that there was expansion talk. Cause remember the PAC 12 started this whole thing. The PAC 12 started this whole thing back when they tried to take Texas and Oklahoma from the big 12. And that's what started this whole process. And then Notre Dame played a big role in kind of, because that was, remember, the super conferences back then. And Notre Dame played a big role in kind of squashing that and, and kind of killing that momentum. Well, they didn't try to stop it this time. And and so, you know, they, they swing a bigger stick than a lot of people are willing to admit. 
I don't know why they're unwilling to admit that because, again, it doesn't have anything to do with football. It's about brand recognition. Max, did you grow up playing EA Sports? Absolutely, I did. Okay. And I've said this on my show before. Do you remember at the beginning when it's loading and you have all the different logos? Mm-hmm. Did you see a USC logo or an Ohio State logo or an Alabama logo? No, you saw two logos. You saw the NCAA and you saw Notre Dame's. That's it, right? Because Notre Dame has always been its own brand. And that's the thing that people understand. So it's way deeper than just a TV contract. And and that's you have to factor that in when you start thinking about what Notre Dame needs financially from a TV contract. Absolutely. Well, yeah, you just had a lot of really good points that I think is going to really help inform my audience just as far as where where Notre Dame's coming from, which is why I was so excited to bring you on. Uh, I have one more que- one more kind of topic I wanted to get into, and then I was thinking we could get to some of these questions because the comment section's just been going crazy this whole time. Um, if you guys are new here, definitely wanted to just give you a reminder, definitely smash the like button and subscribe to the channel and uh, hit that notification bell. So you don't miss out on future live shows. This is our second one of the day. I'm fired up, but, um, Brian, I think one of the biggest talking points with all this, uh, conference realignment has been traditions. Um, I think that has one of the biggest things that makes college football, the greatest sport on the Mm -hmm. planet. Um, and I think a big part of that is rivalries, but, Another part of that is just kind of what happens during the game, uh, game day atmosphere, in-game traditions. Um, I thought it would be cool to talk about some of the Oregon ones that I like, and then we could talk about some of the Notre Dame ones. I've never been out to to uh, South Bend. Have to. Um, but, but yeah, so I'll uh, – some of the – because that was kind of one thing I was just kind of thinking about my, to myself. You know, if Oregon does go to another conference, then, you know, the home games will still be played in Eugene, and we'll still get to see a lot of these great traditions. So – um, I, I just wanted to hit on a couple of my favorite ones. I think my favorite one probably has to be the duck coming out on the motorcycle, uh, then, you know, leading the team out onto the field, uh, and then just revving the, the Harley, which is being used in photo shoots. Now I might add on uh, recruiting visits, which is a really cool way that we see, um, the recruiting landscape changing. you got other schools bringing out, you know, multi-million dollar sports cars, but Oregon has the Harley, which is definitely entrenched in their tradition. You have the shout song that's played, uh, in the, in the third quarter, um, I'm trying to think of what other ones we have. Uh, there are in Eugene, just kind of off the top of my head. I feel like those are the two biggest ones. And you also have the tailgating atmosphere. Um, and then the duck doing push-ups after touchdowns. I think that's a big one. So I just kind of wanted to reflect on kind of some of the aspects that, that make the college game special, more specifically out here in Eugene. Um, but I got to I gotta get some of your insight on, on the Notre Dame ones. I think tradition to me always begins with on the field, right? It, it's the on the field traditions. It's the stories behind them. You know, why USC and Notre Dame are a rival? Because at the time, like I said, Notre Dame was having a hard time getting teams in their region to play them. There wasn't a lot of cross-country travel. You'd have some teams because you had to go by train. You know what I mean? Like it wasn't like you hop on a, you know, a charter jet and fly across the country like you do now. It's, it is a, it was, you were getting on a train. Well, they did that because, they couldn't find teams to play. USC was willing to play them. Uh, they understood what was going on. It became this great rivalry, and they they now they play. The Navy rivalry is there because in the 40s during the war, the World War II, you know, Notre Dame, like a lot of schools, was struggling. And Notre Dame at the time was an all-boys school. It was it's all it's still a small school. It was even smaller then. Never knew uh, that. Yeah, at the time, yeah. And so, you know, the Navy actually set up one of their, you know, one of their training places in South Bend to help Notre Dame stay afloat. Because, I mean, uh, Frank Leahy served during the war. Notre Dame had Heisman Trophy winners that served in the war. 
uh, you know, guys that you, know, you have like a little two year window where their career stopped, like we saw with a lot of professional athletes like Ted Williams and Willie Mays and people like that that served in different wars during their during their times. And so, uh, you know, Ted Williams is a fighter pilot in World War Two. A lot of people don't realize that. You know what I mean? And so um, that's where Notre Dame says, you know, look, Notre Dame is what it is today because Navy helped them survive a world war where, you know, they lost a lot of their students because, again, they were a boys only school. And so that's why Notre Dame plays Navy. And and like at the it's like not a lot of Notre Dame friends are like, hey, it's time to end that tradition. It's like, well, when do you repay back the fact that you only exist because of them? When when is that do that bill due? You, you know can't put I mean? a dollar on that. Right, exactly. And so, and then you watch that game, and it's at the end of every game. So what happens is is Notre Dame, if it's at home, Notre Dame goes to their corner and Notre Dame sings their alma mater at the end of every game, home or away. They sing their alma mater in front of the student section. Well, at home games, they will sing theirs, and Navy will stand at attention behind Notre Dame. And when they're done, Navy goes down to their crowd, and Notre Dame comes behind them, and they stand at attention while Navy sings their their alma mater, That's which is so a cool. really yeah. And there's a tremendous amount of respect in those games, you know. And so. Um, you know, that's one of those cool traditions. And they always have the, the coolest flyovers are always when Notre Dame plays one of the service academies. You get the coolest flyovers at Notre Dame Stadium. You know, and so those are the traditions I love. It's those on-field traditions. But, of course, Notre Dame has others. You know, there's this, the player walk. And and Brian Kelly changed that. He took that from the, you know, the, the football facilities to the bef- before. Marcus Freeman has gone back to what the tradition was, which is the Basilica, which is the on-campus church. They would have mass there and then walk from mass to the stadium. So they brought that back. I think those are the cool things that 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 I like about Notre Dame, and you know, there's some other traditions I'm okay thing go. You know, they have the 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 lines that are slanted at a right angle, and there's a certain number to represent when Notre Dame was founded. I don't care about that. Give me cool Notre Dame and Irish in the end zones. You know, some of those things I, I could I could do without, but you know, those are some of the things uh, that that I love about this sport. But honestly, the the biggest traditions are always to me what happens on the field. And that's what I feel like we're losing with a lot of this is, you know, rivalries used to mean something, getting to a certain bowl game used to mean something. And now it's just like, if you're not in the playoff, it's like your season's a disappointment. And I just think that's kind of sad, but uh, I I just, the on-field traditions are, I mean, I growing up watching Texas and Texas A&M after, you know, on Thanksgiving, that Friday after Thanksgiving, you know what I mean? And you know, those are the things I remember growing up, watching those, you know, watching USC, UCLA, where they, my whole life, they've always worn both wear their home uniforms when they play, you know, no matter where the game is, Rose Bowl, the Coliseum, they both wear their home uniform. You know, those are the things that I love about the sport is, is those on-field rivalries. Michigan, you know, I grew up in Ohio, watching the Michigan-Ohio State game. I, I wasn't a fan of either team. I've been a Notre Dame fan since I was a kid, but I always watched Ohio State-Michigan, still do. That's because Notre Dame's always playing out west, and they all you almost always have an eight o'clock game. <laughs> so you know we can watch them. You know, get to sit in the hotel and watch the noon game between Ohio State and Michigan. So I think the best part about this game is still the rivalries, the on-field product, and and that's that's those have been my favorite experiences. You know, the first time I got to watch Notre Dame play USC in the Coliseum, and I'm sitting there on the field after the game, and I'm thinking about. You know, all the, the Olympics were played here. The first Super Bowl was played here. I think of all the the great Notre Dame games. I think of, you know, Stance Magala picking a pass off and running it back. I think of Tony Rice on the option run in 1988 when it was number one Notre Dame against number two USC and and just all the different things that have happened. It's that's the tradition that I love. And, and you know, and, and you'll hear different things from different people. You know, like I've been at Clemson and and watching them run down the, that 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 hill. After they touch the rock, touch the rock, yep. Those guys, like, that was really cool. Like to experience that, you know what I mean. And then, like, there's cool, like, 
the we did at Virginia Tech and the the Sandman thing. They play Enter the Sandman. Oh, man. Like that's a pretty live thing, you know. I mean, those have those have been some of the really cool things I've got to experience while doing this job and going to all these type of games. And that's one thing I love about being you know covering Notre Dame is because they do play a national schedule. You know, they don't play the same eight teams every year. You know, there's there's they they play basically nine new teams every year essentially. You know, because they just Notre Dame, Stanford, and and Navy are the only three that they've played with any regularity the last twenty years. So those are the things I love, you know, being down at Florida State for the first 2014 game, first time I saw them play each other in, in person. And you think of the big games that have played there and, you know, being at Michigan Stadium in 2011 when Notre Dame and Michigan played. And you think of all the huge games that have played there. And, um, you know, those are the things that I just love about college football. And, and those are the experiences and, and getting to see, you know, what you said, that's cool at Oregon. Notre Dame's is different. USC's is different. Others, and, and just getting to experience those things, you know, walking right by Bevo when I when we were in, in, in Austin in 2016 when Notre Dame played at Texas. Well, that's a big freaking, you know, <laughs> right there, man. You know, those are the things that I love uh, about college football is that kind of stuff because that's what I grew up on, right? It's the nostalgia of your childhood and things that made you fall in love with the sport to begin with. And it was always those type of things. Yeah, I think we definitely have a lot of similarities in terms of kind of what, what makes us appreciate the game and, and like the game. I went to my first Oregon game in 2007. So, um, you know, ha- having seriously been, I started seriously following college football in 2012. So I know I'm still uh, definitely newer to the game. Um, but yeah, there's there's a, a lot of cool things that makes college football unique. I think just the innovation with, with Oregon, I feel like that's kind of a tradition. Um, they've always kind of been pushing the envelope and a couple of things, particularly uniforms. Obviously, you want to look at that. Um, but we're, we're starting to get, we have a lot of questions and, and I thought one was kind of cool. I wanted to throw your way from uh, one of my longtime listeners, Mikey G question for you, Brian, can you speak to Marcus Freeman and what he brings as a new head coach? I feel like he and Lanning have a lot of similarities and I'm biased, but don't know a lot about Freeman. I think that's fair, right? I mean, you're talking about young, energetic, uh, successful defensive coordinators. They actually went toe to toe in the end, at the end of the 2020 season. You know, they played in the Sugar Bowl against each other. Uh, Georgia, Georgia beat Cincinnati, I think, by a point. I think it was like 23-22, I think it was the final score. So we've seen them kind of match up against each other. A uh, lot of energy, a great recruiter. I think the thing about Marcus Freeman, he's also been a bit of a fresh, a bit of a, a breath of fresh air. You know, Brian Kelly had a lot of on-field success, but Brian Kelly wasn't exactly a loved figure in South Bend. You know, someone that didn't really embrace the traditions of Notre Dame, didn't really embrace – the, the players and the people and the coaches that made Notre Dame unique, it was always about Brian Kelly. And Marcus Freeman has kind of come in and embraced all those things. You know, he's bringing Lou Holtz back. And they had over 200 former players at the spring game this past year. I mean, it was insane. Like, um, there was actually, they were close to three, closer to 300 than they were 200. Of all these former players that haven't been back on campus for years, you know, I'm walking into the stadium and Rocket Ismail and Pat Terrell, you know, walk by me. I'm like, hold on a second. That's Rocket right there. You know what I mean? Like I've never met – that's one of the guys I grew up – you know, one of my childhood heroes as a, as a player, things like that. So, you know, I, I think that's – that he's brought a lot of that back, that excitement back, that new voice back. Uh, and he's a guy that's had great success as a recruiter. Now, you know, can I speak to what he's going to be as a head coach? I don't know uh, as far as his – because there's all types of different aspects to it, being a head coach, right, Max? It's, you know, can you recruit? Can you team build? You know, can you put an entire year plan together? Because coaching, successful coaching doesn't just begin the first day of fall camp. It begins the day you come back after winter break. You know, how are we going to build up our team's character? How are we going to build leadership? What's our strength conditioning program going to be like? What's our schedule for spring? You know, what are the different aspects we're going to do to try to build 
the character of this team because every team takes on a different personality and it's going to be built around your leadership and your veterans and your style of play and all these types of different things. No two teams are the same. How do you establish that? How do number one, what's your plan to go into it? And then how do you adapt once your culture starts to kind of take a different shape? If you do need to adapt at all, then putting together your summer plan to make sure that your players are in great shape when fall camp report starts, but not at their peak shape. Because if you're at your peak shape before the season starts, then you're going to peak too early. Those are all challenges. And then you get into, you know, obviously building your, your team's personality during fall camp. Then there's preparation for games. You know, are you able to properly motivate your players? But more importantly, can you put a, a plan together for success Monday to Friday? Because Monday to Friday success is going to have a much greater impact on, on Saturday success than what play you call on third and two. You know, and, and then, but then can you be good on those calls? Can you make the right decisions on fourth downs, punts, going for it, taking the ball, you know, deferring the second half? Are we onside kicking? All of those things go into being a head coach. And, and we don't know what he's going to do with any of those things because he hasn't been through a full season. What we do know is two things, really, when it comes to being a head coach beyond the personality stuff. Number one, he can hire a good staff. And I think that's something that you see from Dan Lanning is I think. What we know of these coaches, it looks like he's put a good staff together. Marcus Freeman has hired, in my opinion, a very good staff, right? He, he, he was fortunate to, to be able to turn the staff over more than people anticipated because, remember, like Oregon, he's not replacing a failed coach that got fired. He's replacing a successful coach that left. Uh, you know, so But at first, uh, several coaches had stayed, and over time, three more of them left, so he was able to kind of turn the staff over more. You know, brought back Harry Heastan, hires Al Golden, you know, former head coach of Miami. You know, you bring in Dylan McCullough, one of the best running backs in the business. Then you take a chance with some other guys like Chancey Stuckey, who's been a college coach for one year before this year. So I think he did a nice job putting his staff together. I really like the potential of the staff of what we know about it. And then the second part is obviously he's a good recruiter. All those other things we don't know yet because we haven't seen him coach a game. But I, I think that he brings a lot of that to the table. And if Dan Lanning's doing those things, and that's at least a good start, right? You, you, you at least have a good foundation to build upon. And, you know, when you talk to sources around Notre Dame, the players love him. I mean, that's a big thing. They feel like he has their back. He demands the coaches be in relationship with the players. And that's not something that they often felt with Brian Kelly. I mean, we've talked about this on our channel. I've been told by players in the past that Brian Kelly would greet the players from winter break, be gone away from campus till spring ball started, then leave after spring ball and you'd see him off and on for the summer. And that's all they'd see him, right? Well, that's not the case with Marcus Freeman. And so I think those are all aspects to it as well, where that's part of that fresh energy. Like Max, I was at the Cincinnati game this year. We had a tailgate that day. And this is an undefeated Notre Dame, top 10 Notre Dame against undefeated top 10 Cincinnati. And there was no energy on campus that day, none. Because at that point in time, Notre Dame fans are almost like, well, this is a top 10 opponent. We don't beat top 10 opponents. So, you know, there just wasn't a lot of energy. There was more excitement and buzz. I mean, you've, you've been at games. You feel it, right, when it's a big game. There was more energy at the spring game than there was at Notre Dame Cincinnati. And I think that says a lot about where the program was from a cultural standpoint when Brian Kelly was there and how he left. Yes, the on-field success was great. But this is it. Just it was it was stale, and I think Marcus Freeman has energized it. Will that result in on-field success? Don't know. We'll find out. But it's definitely brought some energy back to the program, and it certainly had a big impact on recruiting. Yeah, I think there's definitely a lot of parallels that we can draw between Marcus Freeman starting 
starting his tenure as a head coach at, at Notre Dame and then Dan Lanning getting his first head coaching job. Uh, no- Notre Dame, they uh, didn't have as much staff turnover as Oregon did, seeing that um, – at least I, I don't think so. Mate, correct me if I'm wrong. I don't think that they lost as many coaches as Oregon did when Cristobal left. They ended up losing seven. I don't know how many Oregon uh, retained. Okay, yeah. Or- oh, gosh, I – they I'm only retain if they coach. did retain anybody. Well, technically, I mean, assistant coaches. Marcus Freeman yeah. was retained, but they had to hire seven new assistant coaches. Essentially, I'm not okay. sure how many. Yeah, no. Oregon, Oregon basically cleaned house for for the most part, um, and you know we kind of got the feeling during the Alamo Bowl prep that uh, everyone was kind of gone. Which is needed, I think, when you're bringing in an outside coach. The the different aspect here is Marcus Freeman was here last year. At Notre Dame. So, you know, he was a, he knows Mike Mickens. He knows Chris O'Leary. He worked with Tommy Reese. So I think that made it easier to keep some of those guys because they've worked together. They know each other. It's hard to keep coaches on staff. You maybe can keep like one really well-loved guy to help you with the transition. But man, it's hard to keep, it's hard to keep coaches on staff that were on previous staffs. I, I, I think it's almost necessary, especially if you're trying to, you know, create a new culture, new identity of who you want to be as a program. It, man, it can be hard. So I, I would, I would say it's probably a good thing. Even though the previous staff was good, I just think it's good to when you fresh start over to be able to start as fresh. And that's what we're kind of fortunate is for Marcus Freeman is early on it didn't look like he was going to be able to kind of remake the staff and his image. And John McNulty left, and Lance Taylor left, and Mike Elson left to get uh, McNulty and Lance Taylor got OC jobs, and then Mike Elson left to go to Michigan. And I think that kind of opened up some tremendous opportunities for him. Okay. Yeah. So I, I think especially like what I've tried to convey convey is that the the offense needed a revamp just with how dry yeah. and predictable it got. So I think in that respect, it uh, it's good for Oregon to get uh, you know some some really new names, new faces in there. I had uh, two more questions I wanted to run by you, Brian. I know we're coming up on an hour, um, but first is kind of like a big picture question, and then I also wanted to ask you about Dante Moore because. Uh, you know, a lot of Oregon fans are uh, clamoring about him and thinking uh, commitment can be could be imminent. But uh, first to the big picture question, I want to make sure I take my time to phrase this right, because I don't want people to misconstrue what I'm saying. I think I kind of wanted to just big picture compare Oregon and Notre Dame as programs. Mm-hmm. But I don't like, I'm kind of trying to just think, you know, maybe how, how close is Oregon to, to being on Notre Dame's level? Because right now, when I kind of take uh, a broad look at Oregon. The recruiting is obviously uh, ascending. There's going to be no drop off. It looks like from Lanning to, to from Cristobal rather to, to Lanning. Um, and we know that you have to recruit at a super high level to be a college football playoff contender. But Oregon's at the point where Rose Bowl titles, Pac-12 titles aren't enough. I feel like it's kind of they have to get back to the playoffs. That's their next big step. And then Notre Dame. They're obviously so much more established than Oregon. There's all the history and the tradition. They've won numerous national championships, but they haven't done it in a little bit. And I feel like that's kind of the next that's step. Being for nice, them. yeah, that's yeah, yeah. Fine. So I, 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 so I feel it. But then, like, they did get back to the playoff, and then they they got destroyed by Alabama most recently. But that, like, that's a perfect example. Well, of Seventeen. Issue. Yeah, I gotcha. Sorry, maybe, maybe that was too too harsh. But they, they lost to Alabama. But I feel like that's an example that shows how big of a difference there is from just going to the playoff and then Mm -hmm. winning a playoff game and ultimately winning the national championship. So I'm kind of just trying to get your thoughts on maybe how you think Oregon stacks up to Notre Dame, seeing that, you know, obviously, you know, Notre Dame very well. I think it depends on where we do, where do you want this conversation to go? Right. 
And, and the conversation is if we're talking about where the programs are right now from a football standpoint, I, I would say they're competitive. If you want to make it more of a big picture program branding, all that kind of stuff, they're not close. And I don't know if they ever will be uh, from a branding standpoint. As you said, Notre Dame is still arguably the most powerful brand in college football, and they haven't won a title in over 30 years, right? And, and they haven't been competitive for a title in since 1993. It was okay. the last time that Notre Dame was literally a – a team where they finished number two, they beat the number one team convincingly. Florida, you know, Florida State that year lost to Boston College, went and played a top five AM team in the Cotton Bowl one. And a lot of people said, yeah, Notre Dame should have been the champs that year. I'm not necessarily one of those people because I'm like, well, you flipping lost to Boston College next week at home, right? You lost your, you had a chance to be a champion and you freaking lost to Boston College. Uh, you know, but uh, it's it, from a brand standpoint, it's not close. Oregon's still new. They're still a baby, right? I mean, sure. Mike Bellotti got them onto a reputable stage. I mean, they've had a lot of success the last 20 years, but they're still a baby in that regard. I mean, it's sure. not close from a brand standpoint. From an on-field product the last decade, they're very close. I mean, yeah, look, that's what I was thinking. You, you know, Oregon, If I mean, they had the 2010 season where they, I mean, Michael Dyer rolling over on a guy and getting up and running away for a touchdown away from being a national champion, right, with that Darren Thomas team. You know, I still contend that if Dennis Dixon does, and I, I'm curious what Oregon fans think about this. I've talked about this on our show. I've contended that if Dennis Dixon doesn't get hurt, and I think it was 06, I think Oregon's playing for a title that year. And I think they would have beat LSU. I'm not LSU. Um. Uh, who, who won it? 2006. I'm I'm sorry. I was. Uh, it was. Uh, it would have been Ohio State. They would have played Ohio State the championship game, and I think they could have played with Ohio State if it's. It was either 06 or no, it was 07 when LSU won it. That's when it was. It was 07 because they mm-hmm. would have beat LSU. A two loss LSU team won the title that year with Les Miles. That Dennis Dixon team before he got hurt was rolling. You know, we talked about 2010, 2014. You beat the defending national champions 59 to 20 in the playoff. And yeah, Ohio State dominated, but it was a competitive-ish game, much more competitive than what happened two years before when Notre Dame went down to Miami and played, you know, Alabama for the for the BCS championship game. It wasn't competitive from the start of the game. The only time that game was close was during warmups, and even that's debatable. You know what I mean? <laughs> um, you know, so so then you go play Clemson, and you know that was a competitive game for a while, and and Clemson pulled away, but again, you lost twenty. You know, thirty to three. You go out and you lose to Alabama, thirty-one to fourteen, in in the Cotton Bowl. You know, their play or Rose Bowl two years ago, and it got to the point where Brian Kelly's like bragging about how Notre Dame's loss in the playoff was by fewer points than the team that lost in the championship game. I'm like, that's what you're bragging about. This is freaking Notre Dame. You're bragging about your loss was closer than Alabama's loss in 25th, 18, and and closer than Clem or Ohio State's loss to Bama in 2020. Like, what are we doing here? Where so so football wise, I don't think it's that big of a gap. I mean, and if anything, Oregon's been more competitive on a big stage. You know, the last time Notre Dame won a a major bowl game was the nineteen ninety four Cotton Bowl. So the last time Notre Dame has won a made one of the New Year's Six games. Well, Oregon has won one. What the last one was like twenty nineteen after twenty nineteen when they beat Wisconsin in the Rose Bowl. Correct, if I'm remembering correctly, they haven't won their last win. major bowl win. Yeah, New Year's one of the New Year's Six games, right? Wasn't it the Rose Bowl with Herbert? Yeah, over yeah, it was Rose Bowl. That was an ugly game. The entire offense disappeared, and then Herbert said, "Let me just take hey, over." Notre Dame fans will take an ugly win in a big bowl if they don't care at this point in time, right? It's about getting that W. And, and so, on field where they are right now, I don't think they're that far off. They went through some down periods with with you know Coach Helfrich and and you know Willie Taggart, you know the destroyer of programs. Uh, you know, but fortunately they got out of that one pretty quickly. You know, he took the Florida State job and, and ran he brought them into Mario. the ground. 
Yeah, and, and, and Coach Cristobal's done a nice job of rebuilding. He did a really nice job with his early staff, you know, bringing in Coach Levitt, bringing in Coach, uh, Coach Moorhead, and, and bringing in some veterans and establishing an identity. And he wasn't there yet. He was trying to build that physical you know, dimension, which allowed them to go to Columbus and beat Ohio State and just out physical Ohio State. But then, you know, you couldn't sustain it week after week, which is why Utah stomped them twice. You know, so, I mean, mm-hmm. that's kind of what Notre Dame is being dealing with, right, is, is Brian Kelly has put together a great record. And he and nobody talks about his record the last five years more than he does. You know, and we've gone, you know, what is it now? I'm trying to remember what the record was. So they went they went 10 and three, and then they were 12 and one. And then they were 11 and two, then they were 10 and two. And then last year they were 11 and one, you know, so what are they? 54 and 54, nine, the last five years. Right. Well, here's the, here's the reality of it. Their record against teams that were ranked was like 13 and nine. That's it. You know, and, 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 and some of those wins are over, like he had two ranked wins over Navy, you know, their, their two biggest wins out, they beat Michigan in 18, which was a huge win. Michigan was really good that year. Their next two wins over ranked teams were Northwestern and Syracuse, right? So, and that's kind of been the big knock is when you play the big teams, when you go to Miami in 2017 and they're in the top 10, you get beat. You know, when you play Clemson and they're actually healthy, you get beat. When you play Stanford and they're actually good, you get beat. And that was a knock on Brian Kelly. So, you know, Notre, we talked about this today, Max, is Notre Dame's in a unique place because they're trying to close the gap on Bama and Ohio State and Clemson and Georgia, but there's programs behind them that aren't that far behind them, like Oregon, Miami, you know, teams like that that are trying to close the gap on them. So they can't just focus on the teams ahead of them. They got to also make sure that they're not getting passed up by the teams behind them. And I think Oregon's one of those teams. I don't know enough about Dan Laney to say he's going to get him there. I, so just like I'm sure a lot of Oregon fans are like, I don't know if Marcus Freeman is going to get him there. But I think they're both kind of in that tier two behind the best programs, jockeying for position with AM and Miami, who Crystal Ball is doing a great job recruiting down there at Miami right now, you know, to try to say, hey, can you be that program? You know, what's Oklahoma going to do with Brent Venables? We've talked a lot about Oklahoma on our show, where I'm like, you know, I know Lincoln Riley's this offensive genius and all that, but they didn't play a lick of defense. You know, maybe they don't score as much offensively, but maybe they're going to get back to playing real defense in, in Norman, which may give them actually a better chance to be competitive. Is that going to how it's going to shape up in Norman? So, you know, there's a lot of teams jockeying for that position. And, I mean, I think Notre Dame and Oregon are, are right there in that tier. Maybe Notre Dame's a little bit ahead at the current yeah. moment, but it's not that big of a gap. And I think it's what's, what happens the next couple of years in the recruiting trail and on the field is going to say a lot about that. Yeah, I think that's a great way to put it. Just kind of, I think Notre Dame's ahead for sure. Certainly with with recruiting and Marcus Freeman's just absolutely gone ballistic recruiting since he got hired as the the head coach. And and that's where I want to end the show is on a recruiting question here, Brian. Um, you've been so generous with your time, but is one more question okay for you? Yeah, I'm not going to have a lot to say about Dante Moore, to be completely honest with you. So um, he's a heck of a quarterback and whoever gets him is going to get a special player. That's about that's about all we say now on our channel uh, about about that one. So I, I don't have any insight into where he's going to go. Sure. I've heard all the rumblings that everybody else has in Oregon and all this kind of stuff. I don't know what he's going to do, but he's a heck of a quarterback, and I wish Notre Dame was – I wish he would sign with Notre Dame. Obviously, that doesn't look like it's going to be the case right now, but he's a great kid, 4.0 student, and a great quarterback. And um, he's the kind of kid a program needs if you're going to take that next step, right? Well, we just talk about, right? Uh, trying to get to that next level. Dante Moore's kind of kid that can help you get there. And that's about all I have to say about 
Dante more at this point in time uh, sure. beyond what you guys already all know. Okay. Yeah, fair enough. No, I think that that's uh, obviously the biggest name that Duck fans have their eyes on on the recruiting trail as they look to get uh, you know their quarterback in the 2023 class. Options are, are definitely dwindling with, uh, you know, they're missing out on Jaden Rashada. Uh, Avery Johnson just committed to Kansas State today. Uh, not much of a surprise there, but um, just with how all the recruiting dominoes and quarterback dominoes affect everything, it's, it's going to be it's going to be entertaining to see how uh, mm-hmm. Oregon can hopefully pull this off, uh, seeing that they're all in on uh, on Dante now. Well, and and look, we, what look at I mean, look at Texas. A five star quarterback can have a pretty big impact on recruiting. Three mm-hmm. weeks ago, Texas was like, and they were all, they were all right. You know, they they had a great twenty twenty two class and you know, finished top five in the nation. But they were they were you know how's this class going to be? And then Arch Manning commits, and it's like. This kid wants to come. This kid wants to come. This one's kid wants to come. We've seen that a little bit with Notre Dame in 2024 when they got CJ Carr. All of a sudden, Notre Dame goes get CJ Carr, and all of a sudden, you know, Cam Williams commits and Jack Larson commits, and you know, now there's all these other kids that are looking at Notre Dame. So, getting a big time quarterback is important because look, if you're a skill player, I mean, these kids are smart. They look at college football. Hmm. Not a lot of Stetson Bennett's winning championships, right? Like he's the unicorn. Like he's the anomaly. It's usually like Joe Burrow. You know, Trevor Lawrence, <laughs> you know what I mean? It's like it's Mac mm-hmm. Jones, first-round pick. Kids know, hey, if I want to win a championship, you know, I, I got to play with a great quarterback. And kids want to play. It's a little different in basketball. You know, you want to play with other great players in football. And, you know, I think a kid like Dante Moore, where if he goes to Oregon or AM or LSU or Notre Dame or wherever, you know, big-time players want to play with big-time quarterbacks. And so – uh, Notre Dame needs to get more of those. Oregon needs to get one of those. And and honestly, I love Jaden Rashada. But if you lost Jaden Rashada to get Dante Moore, it's not a loss. I'm just telling you right now, he's my number one ranked quarterback in the country. And that's not that that's true. Even though he's not coming to Notre Dame, that wasn't my ranking because I thought he's going to come to Notre Dame. That's my ranking because I think he's the best quarterback in the country. And that's that's where I'll leave that particular subject uh, at the moment, if that's okay. Sure. No, that's that's totally cool with me. I mean, we had a we had a great show. We're gonna go ahead and wind down here. Uh, talked a lot about uh, kind of Oregon and, and where they fit into the big picture with college football, mm-hmm. the direction college football is going at, what we think is gonna happen with Notre Dame. Um, I think that that's definitely something that we we gotta watch. Um, I'm glad I'm not the only channel that gets those stupid things popping dude, up. Why? I get all these Russian spam comments, <laughs> and I'm like, leave me alone. I'm just trying to talk football and do my job. Okay, wow. Well, that's probably a sign that we need to get out of here. There's just too many people in this chat. But uh, before we get out of here, Brian, I mean, a lot of Oregon fans, like I said, they're going to be watching uh, Notre Dame to see what happens. Where can people find more of you and and the work you're doing? Well, we obviously have a lot of different platforms. You can find our website at irishbreakdown.com. That is our our Fan Nation website. Uh, We also have a premium message board. We put members-only content. If you want to find our show on YouTube, uh, look, we are open to fans of all teams. We've got Ohio State fans that come in there. Some of them act like knuckleheads. The ones that hang around do a great job. We have USC fans. We have Michigan fans. And and uh, we have an Alabama fan. So if you love talking college football, come come check out our show. And we enjoy it. It's a very active channel. Uh, we passed 10,000 subscribers recently. You can find that. Irish Breakdown uh, is the name of that. And then also, Irish Breakdown is also the name of our podcast. If you're more of a podcast listener or not, you know, a YouTube person, you can also just type in Irish Breakdown. You can find us at, you know, obviously Apple, Spotify, all that. So we're now through Blue Wire Pods, uh, which has a, a, been a great partner of ours. So we're everywhere, man. And you can find me on Twitter, Coach D178. I tweet out all our stories and, 
you know, when we're going to go live and all that kind of stuff. So we, we got it rolling. And I'm Max, I'm hoping to see you catch us here in a, in a couple of years, getting up to, to 10,000 as well, man. I know you're just getting started and, you know, I'm, I'm, I'm pulling for you to continue to keep growing and, and keep putting out a great show and we'll help out any, any way we can, man. Absolutely. Well, definitely appreciate your time, Brian. If you guys want to find more of me, you can follow me on Twitter at mtorissports and on YouTube at Oregon Football Max Torres. Like and subscribe, hit that notification bell, all that good stuff. And please share the show with other fans and friends and family. That is the biggest favor you can do for us as we continue to grow. And that is a tremendous help uh, with what we're doing here covering the Oregon Ducks. But that'll do it for us in this episode. Big thanks to Brian. And we will catch you guys in the next episode. Take care. Everyone is talking about magnesium. It's all you hear about. But why? What do we know about magnesium? Well, magnesium is the number one mineral that 75% of Americans are deficient in. If you are a woman over 35, magnesium will help you rediscover balance, energy, and vitality. Magnesium supports more than 300 enzymatic reactions in your body, including those involved in hormonal balance. From functional medicine doctors to mental well-being and female hormone experts, we all know that magnesium is the one mineral to improve all aspects of well-being and health. But which one? Magnesium Breakthrough from Bioptimizers. The trusted choice recommended by leading experts with seven best-absorbed forms of magnesium to ensure your body receives the support it needs for overall well-being. Go to bioptimizers.com balance today and use code BALANCE10 for 10% off. Support your journey to wellness at B-I-O-P-T-I-M-I-Z-E-R-S dot com forward slash balance. Magnesium Breakthrough from Bioptimizers, your foundation to optimal health and vitality.